Hebrews chapter 10. Well, we'll be looking at verses 35 through 39 again. I have desperately been trying to finish this sermon. This is a third week now. Uh, It was meant to be a one-week thing. This is now part three. I don't know how you feel about that. I hate it, so I apologize. Meant to be done. But uh, I'm not even going to say we're going to finish today because I've said that the last two weeks and we haven't. How about if the Lord wills, we'll just see what happens. The title of this sermon is Tips for Tumultuous Times. Once again, we'll start reading in verse 35 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to the destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word stands, Lord. Thank you that your word is the anvil that many critics' hammers have long since been worn out on. They're dead and gone, and your word stands. Jesus, you said, the heaven and earth would pass away, but not a jot or a tittle of the word. Thank you, Lord, for your eternal word. Thank you for the effect that it has in our lives, that by the Holy Spirit working through your holy word, our lives are transformed. And we ask that the teaching of the word, in conjunction with the power of the Spirit, would be transformative this morning. That you wouldn't let us be Sunday Christians, you wouldn't let us be Christmas Christians, you'd make us real, authentic Christians that we'd be followers and disciples of Jesus. And so speak to us, Lord. You know the ins and the outs of our lives today. Speak into our lives. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the context of the book of Hebrews, the original audience was encountering difficult times, tumultuous times. And we lift from the text this morning three tips for tumultuous times. The first one comes from verse 35. It's draw near to God. When things aren't going right, the first thing that you want to do is draw near to God. And we spoke about that two weeks ago. The idea of drawing near to God is being intimate with Jesus Christ. We have confidence to do so because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we do so, we draw confidence to face the conflicts of this life. We build character to be the men and women of God. And we receive strength to make it through the drama of our day. And so in difficult times, the first thing that you want to do is draw near to Jesus. The second point comes right from verse 36. It's do the will of God. This is where we often err, is that we take things into our own hands in difficult situations and we try to manipulate it. We try to make it work. We try to rationalize little works or workarounds. And what we need to do in tough times is be obedient That is paramount. That is so important. Lord, times are hard right now. Times aren't making sense. My life isn't working out. There's all this drama. What should I do? Be obedient. Do the will of God. In order to know the will of God, you've got to know the word of God. That's why we're going to try to read the Bible again together in 2009. You've got to hide the word of God in your heart that you might not sin against him. One of the places, places where Christians often find themselves sinning is in hard times, failing to do the right thing. But remember, the benefit of doing the right thing is it invites God into your mess. And we make messes, don't we? 
And where you want God in relation to your mess is right in the middle. Lord, help me. I'm making a mess again. And when we do the right thing, even when it's difficult, and we take the path of, or we don't take the path of least resistance, it invites Jesus and his redemptive work into that drama. And he brings good things out of it. Beauty for ashes. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Takes our broken things and makes them good again. That's what the Lord does. But you invite him into that through doing the right thing. And then the final point that we'll talk about today is waiting for the Son of God. Verse 37. It says, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. In tumultuous times, you want to be waiting for Jesus. You want to draw near to Jesus intimately by the Holy Spirit. You want to obey Jesus. You want to do the right thing. And then you want to have a mindset and a heart that is set on looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. You want to make it something that you're literally, actually, daily looking forward to. Because you see, it is a core doctrine of the Christian faith that Jesus is coming again. And if we get that, it has a profound effect on the way that we live. No matter what your eschatology is, eschatology, eschatos, it's the Greek word for uh, end or the last things, eschatology, the study of the last things. No matter how you lay out the end time scenario, no matter what your eschatology is, whether the rapture happens before the tribulation or in the middle or the after or it's in conjunction with the second coming, whatever it is, the point is this. God's people have always experienced throughout the generations difficult times. And God has always told them to look for the deliverer. When times are hard, be looking for the one who is coming. When Israel was enslaved to Egypt, they were crying out for a deliverer. And God sent them Moses, who prefigured the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. And then later on in history, when Israel was dominated under Roman imperial rule, once again, they were looking for the deliverer. And this time it was Jesus Christ, his incarnation, the first advent, the coming of the babe who would give his life for you and I. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, they're experiencing tremendously difficult times and they're reminded to look for Jesus because he who is coming is coming in just a little while. And so even though they were enduring persecution, they needed to have the mindset of the apostle Paul, who in his own ministry had been beaten five times with rods this is 2 Corinthians 11 here, had been whipped three times with a cat of nine tails, had been stoned and left for dead one time, shipwrecked three times, left out in the ocean a day and a night in the deep, had been in all sorts of dangers and dramas and tumults and difficulties, and yet he was able to say, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that I shall see in Jesus Christ. In other words, his mindset based on scripture was the difficulty of this world pales in comparison to the promise of the next one. And the promise of the next one is experienced either at death or the coming of the Lord, whichever comes first. And so the Christian then is able to have this attitude of yes, things are hard, but my heart and my mind are set on Jesus and he's coming. 
and he is coming as a deliverer. And so verse 37 is meant to encourage them to hang on and do the right thing in difficult times because he who is coming is coming soon. Now, it says soon and it was written 2,000 years ago. But don't forget, Second Peter tells us that a thousand years of the Lord is like a day. He who is coming is coming soon. But there's another way to look at that. The church, you and I, and the church throughout history, the generations, is supposed to live in expectation. We're supposed to live on edge. We're all supposed to believe that the coming of the Lord might be in our lifetime. Because at the ascension of Jesus Christ, the disciples were given this message. Look at this little vignette from Acts 1. We have it up on the screen, starting in verse 10. It's the ascension of Jesus Christ, and it says, As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into the heaven. And so from that moment, the disciples and the subsequent church and every generation and expression of the church has been set on edge and put in expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. They were standing there waiting and the angel said in the same way, he's coming again. And then after this, the overwhelming language of the New Testament is, watch therefore, for you know not the hour when your master is coming. That is the inescapable, overwhelming language of the New Testament is that Jesus could come at any time. We call that the doctrine of imminency. Imminent, meaning can happen at any moment. Jesus could come at any time over and over again from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 all the way to the book of Revelation. The church is told it could be at any moment. Watch therefore. Live right therefore. Be busy about the work of the kingdom. Persevere in difficult times because Jesus could come at any time. As it says in verse 37, and yet in a very little while. And so because scripture tells us that, the church has been diligent in every generation to look at the signs of the times and be able to think we might be that generation. It's interesting that every generation was able to do that. We look now and we're like, oh, we are for sure the generation. (laughs) But we're not the first generation to be able to say that. But as Daniel, the prophet Daniel promised, knowledge would increase in the last days. And we are seeing more and more and more and more reasons to think that the coming of the Lord to be in our lifetime. I personally would be shocked if it wasn't. But I'm not the first pastor to say that. (laughs) Paul believed the very same thing. When he spoke about the rapture of the church, the coming of Jesus Christ for the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, he said, we inclusive pronoun, inclusive plural pronoun. We who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up to meet him in the sky and thus we shall always be with the Lord. He said we. And he maintained that attitude of thinking that he would see the coming of the Lord in his lifetime until 1 Timothy chapter 6, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4 where it had been revealed to him that he would die and he said, hey, I'm about to get ready to go home and be with the Lord. So Timothy, you need to pastor this church diligently. 
But throughout his life, until God revealed to him that he would die very soon, he believed that he would see the coming of the Lord in his generation. Are we to think then that Paul was mistaken? No. Paul was absolutely right on. Every Christian in every generation is to expect the coming of the Lord. That is the design of Scripture. That is the way God set it up. Is that God deceiving us? Not by any means. He could come at any time. Yet in a very little while, the text says, and we say, well, it's been 2,000 years. Be careful what sort of attitude you develop about that and you let others around you develop. Because in 2 Peter, it says that in the last days, scoffers would come saying, where is this coming? He said that so long ago and nothing has changed. Don't be found among the scoffers. Be found among the faithful who are waiting, who are watching, who are looking, who are living a right life because Jesus Christ is coming back, who are persevering difficult times who don't consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall see because the Lord is coming. And so it is right and it is by design to watch, to wait, to expect, to live that way. What is not right and what goes against God's design is to cease to expect. And throughout history, there has been segments of the church and periods of time where the church has lost that expectation. And when the church loses that expectation, the church changes a little bit. As I've studied history, I've seen that when the church loses the expectation and the hope of his appearing, the church becomes more human-oriented. The church becomes more humanistic. The church begins to do good things, but they forget the goal of those things. The church begins to get very involved in humanitarian outreach, which is great and good and the church should do. But they forget to deliver the gospel. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it matter that you go to Africa and you dig a well for the people if you don't take them to the well that Jesus took the woman in John 4 to? He said, woman, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for something to drink. And if you drink of this water, you would never thirst again. And torrents of living water would flow forth from your innermost being. But you see, when the church loses its expectation of the coming of the Lord, the the gospel begins to get clouded and obscured a little bit, and they become merely humanitarian in their efforts. We should build wells, absolutely. The church must be feeding widows and orphans in their distress. We must be caring for the hurting in our community that have lost their homes in the fire that don't have stuff at Christmas time. We must be building orphanages as we are in Thailand and Mexico and other places, but they must all be bridges over which we deliver the gospel. They must be, absolutely must be. The church exists for the glory of Jesus Christ and God is glorified in the gospel. We've got to be people that are preaching the gospel. And so we're to be living in expectation and that brings about right living. And we'll talk about that more next week. But Revelation 22, 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. 
And then the response is, amen, come Lord Jesus. So even Jesus at the end of the book of Revelation says, I'm coming quickly. And then we have this wonderful phrase that we need to say more often found in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, and it's Maranatha. You older folk that were saved in the Jesus people times in the early 70s, this was a big one for you. You all started a record label called Maranatha and you guys were always saying it, Maranatha. And the younger generation has kind of let that slip, but I think we all ought to bring it back together. It ought to be on our lips, but more importantly, in our hearts, Maranatha. It is Aramaic for, oh Lord, come soon. And that ought to be the real, true heartfelt, sincere cry of our lives is Jesus come soon for so many reasons, not least of which being the reason that's given to us in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 is that he is our deliverer. And the fact of his coming to establish his kingdom and set right every wrong enables us to endure the evil of this world more easily. What a hopeless world if there's no judgment at the end. You see, we can persevere, we can get through the day because we know the end, the eschaton. We've studied eschatology, the final things, that Jesus Christ is going to come, he's going to set up his kingdom, he's going to rule and reign, and there's going to be a judgment. But the wicked of the world, if they don't repent, will pay. And that every deed done in darkness will be exposed in the light. That helps us to process. That helps us to persevere. To know that Jesus is coming and he's going to set every wrong right. And so the cry of the heart becomes, in difficult times, Maranatha. And that's what he's telling them. Look, you guys are being threatened for your faith. Maranatha. Cry out, Lord Jesus, come. It's not escapism. It is hope. There's a big difference. It's not escapism. It's counting as real the promises of God. We need to be looking for, as Titus 2.13 says, the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We need to be those who have loved His appearing, as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8. And if you're not among those who are looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, if you're not among those who love His appearing, His appearing, then there's something awry in your little Christian heart. Perhaps it's a theological error. Perhaps you just haven't been educated on the fact that Jesus is coming again, but what's very clear from the Scripture is not necessarily the time that has elapsed, but the heart of the Christian. And the heart of the Christian must be that of expectation. And you see then, that affects everything. Again, we're going to talk more about how that affects us behaviorally next week. But it really affects mission, doesn't it? I mean, if Jesus is coming soon, we better get our rears in gear. If Jesus is coming soon, then we need to get the gospel out there. It's not enough to just build a well. We need to deliver the living water. If Jesus is really coming soon, then I got to be about his business. In my office where I work, I got to be about the business of the king because he's coming soon. It changes everything if you grasp that theological truth. To neglect that theological truth is sin and error. You're not being a biblical Christian unless you're living in expectancy of his coming. And so in difficult times, 
We can and we are to look forward to his appearing because he who is coming will come. Now, the interesting thing about Christmas is that it has a way of amplifying both conditions and emotions that are present in our life. You know what I'm talking about? Christmas has a way of amplifying, magnifying both conditions and emotions in our lives. Christmas seems to be the time when those who have reason to rejoice seize the day and rejoice all the more, and that's good. But Christmas is also the time when those who have reason to weep often dread the day and weep all the more. Christmas really does have a way of amplifying conditions and emotions. And one of the calls on the church is to rejoice with those who rejoice, hooray, and to weep with those who weep. And if we take a sober and sincere look at our nation right now, we are a nation that is currently losing more than we're used to, at least for my generation. At least for my generation, we look at our nation and we are a nation that is losing more than we are used to. We're fighting wars on multiple fronts. And I'm not saying that we're losing those wars, but we're losing men and women every day. And there are rumors of wars abounding. Multiple fronts could turn to a multiplication of multiple fronts very quickly. We are facing some real economic challenges. This from Fox News, it says, a record one in 10 American homeowners with a mortgage were either at least a month behind on their payments or in foreclosure at the end of September. A record. One in 10 Americans that have a mortgage, either a month behind or in foreclosure. Also from Fox News, employers slashed 533,000 jobs in November, the most in 34 years. You see, I'm in my mid-30s, so I've never seen anything like this. So I look around at my nation, and I'm not used to losing this much. Retail sales are the weakest they've been at Christmas time in 35 years. That from the New York Times. I look around our nation, and I see that broken families are an epidemic. Broken families are tough at Christmas. They're an epidemic in the church and outside the church. Look around at our community. We're a community that has recently lost so much. I mean, we can't forget that hundreds of homes burned on our coastline in that fire. Many from our church. And I look around. We are a people weighed down with sin. We are a society that is wicked and perverse. I mean, we are really perverted. And you see, all these things at Christmas time can bring mixed feelings. As Christians, we feel intuitive, social, and theological pressure to rejoice at Christmas time, don't we? 
As Christians, we feel intuitive, social, and theological pressure to rejoice at Christmas time and to celebrate. After all, the angels did announce to the shepherds good news of great joy in Luke 2.10. Good news of great joy. But if we look at the Christmas story closely, we'll see that the coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the advent, Christmas, we'll see that it is directed to those who were losing, those who had lost, and those who were broken, both by sin and by circumstance. Long before the advent, the Lord had said through the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2, that when the Messiah came, when the incarnation took place, that it would happen in Bethlehem. And what was the commentary about Bethlehem? It was too little to be included among the clans of Judah. In other words, it wasn't even on the map. It was like Carpinteria. (laughs) Just not even on the map. Too little. Santa Barbara, I know. Ventura, I've heard of. But Carpinteria? Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And yet it was prophesied that the Messiah would come there, that the incarnation the draping of God in human flesh would take place in Bethlehem. And so what we begin to see hundreds of years before it takes place is that it would be directed at the small, at the marginalized, at the fringe, at the forgotten even. The prophet Isaiah amplifies this when he prophesies in chapters 9 and 60 that when Messiah came, the people sitting in darkness would see a great light. And those sitting in the shadow of death would have a light dawn upon them. Sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. Talking about the region of the Galilee where Jesus would grow up and where he would minister. The context at the time of Christmas, the advent, the incarnation, the first coming would be a time of darkness. People feeling like they're in the shadow of death. So much of a reality was that, that when Zacharias realized that Jesus was coming, he called the incarnation the sunrise. And when Simeon saw the Messiah, he called him the consolation of Israel. To add to that, by the time Jesus came, the voice of God had not spoken to Israel through a prophet for 400 years. These were people that were used to hearing the voice of God and it had gone silent through the prophets for 400 years and they were sitting in darkness and they were in the shadow of death. You see, at the time of the incarnation, it was dark days in Israel. We're given a profound contextual clue about that in Luke chapter one, verse five. And I hope this Christmas season, you'll read chapters one and two of Luke with your family. We're given a contextual clue where it says in verse 5 of Luke 1, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. If you know your history, you're able to interpret in the days of Herod means these were dark days for Israel. When Herod died, the whole nation breathed a breath of relief. When Herod died, his family, his friends, and his subjects celebrated his death. Life under Herod, who was ruling as a Roman emperor over Israel at the time, was difficult. And during the first Christmas, we have the context of the Roman occupation, which meant for Israel, 
political and military domination. They were being dominated politically, militarily. It also meant for them economic exploitation. They were being exploited economically. They were being heavily taxed by the Roman government. They had to pay tributes. They had to pay taxes to the Roman government. And then the Roman government had made the leaders of the temple and the leaders of Israel a puppet. And so they had to pay extra temple taxes that were not spoken of in the Torah. They were under heavy taxation and times were difficult and there were no government bailouts. There was no chapter 11. There was no chapter 13. There was none of that. When a family got under heavy debt in the first century, you know what it meant for a Jewish father? That he would have to sell his daughter into slavery. There was no recourse. There was no other option. He would take his little girl and he would put her on an auctioning block. These were people that knew difficulty. And to top it off, the spiritual life in Israel was at an all-time low. These were dark days in little Israel. Taxes were high. Unemployment was high. Morals were slipping lower. The military state was in control. God had been silent for 400 years. That's the pre-story of Christmas. When you bring it into the immediate context... We have the announcement of the forerunner, John the Baptist, given to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth was barren. In fact, she's called in the Gospel of Luke, the barren one. And what did it mean to be barren in that society? It was basically economically and socially disastrous. Economically, because society was set up such that when you grew old, your children would take care of you. They would provide for you. So if you were barren and you had no kids, there was no one to watch out for you when you got old and nobody to provide for you. It was economically disastrous that she was barren. It was also socially disastrous because sometimes throughout Israel's history and Old Testament times, barrenness was a judgment for sin. Remember Michal, the wife of David? In 2 Samuel 6, when David danced unto the Lord in his chonies, you remember that story? (laughs) Danced to the Lord in his chonies. Michal thought that was uh, behavior unfitting of a king, unbefitting of a king, and she mocked David, and the Lord struck Michal barren. So the Jews understood barrenness as being a judgment from God for sin. That wasn't the case with Elizabeth because the Gospels tell us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. She just happened to literally, actually, physically be barren. But you know what? People in the first century were a lot like you and me. They assumed the worst about other people, just like you and me. And so when they saw that she was barren, they for sure thought in their mind, she must really be rotten. I have kids, she doesn't, so she's worse than me. That makes me feel better about me. In fact, we're told in Luke that she was simply referred to in her society as the barren one. They took the difficulty of her condition and they made it her nickname. People do that in junior high. Adults aren't supposed to do that. 
We're talking about adults here. We're talking about old people. She was simply called the barren one. This was a woman who lived in shame, who knew embarrassment, who was judged by the society around her, who was ostracized and rejected because of a condition she had that she could do nothing about. And then you have Zechariah, her husband. And when he was in the temple ministering and the angel appeared and told him that John the Baptist would be given to him and his wife Elizabeth, he didn't believe it. Here he's supposed to be a priest in Israel, a great man of faith, and he didn't believe it. We're not talking about a momentary lapse of faith, a little bit of doubt, like, really, Lord? We're not talking about one of those. We're talking about deep, core disbelief, evidenced by the fact that God struck him mute for the next nine months. Real, real, deep, destructive disbelief. And yet the forerunner, the Messiah, would be given to these two. What about Joseph and Mary? Joseph and Mary were poor, you know. I mean, they literally were. In Luke chapter 2, they go when Jesus is eight days old to offer the sacrifice that the book of Leviticus chapter 12 said that they should offer. Because the firstborn son was holy to the Lord, the Lord said. And so the parents had to redeem the firstborn son back from the Lord with a sacrifice. And the sacrifice given to Israel in Leviticus 12 was a lamb. So Joseph and Mary, if they were normal people, they would have brought a lamb to the temple to sacrifice that day. But the Lord is so kind. He said in Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8, if you're too poor and you can't afford a lamb, who didn't have a lamb in those days? If you can't afford a lamb, then you could bring a little bird. And we're told in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, that when Joseph and Mary came, they brought a bird to sacrifice. You see, these were poor people. Not only poor, but they were from Nazareth. Nazareth made Bethlehem look like Los Angeles. <laughs> Nazareth was nothing. A fringe city up north, maybe 1,500 people at the time of Jesus. It was nothing in the mind of the Jews, evidenced by the fact that in John chapter 1, somebody said, what good thing can come from Nazareth when they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth? Not only that, but people from Nazareth were considered by people from Jerusalem, 60 miles to the south, to be just dirty because they were in the Galilee area and it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Isn't that what it's called? Because historically it was inhabited by Gentiles. And so the Jews in the south who were very religious, very prim, very proper around Jerusalem and Judea, they looked to the north to their Jewish brothers that lived among the Gentiles and said, oh, dirty up there just surrounded by Gentiles, unclean Jews up in that area. And you're from Nazareth and you're poor? (laughs) That's the reality of Joseph and Mary. And yet the Messiah, the deliverer, the Savior, would be entrusted to them. And when the Messiah was entrusted to Mary, you need to know that she was ostracized because she was a virgin She was betrothed. She was given in marriage, but they hadn't consummated their vows. And yet all of a sudden she shows up with a kid. Okay, there's a couple problems with that. (laughs) Number one, she would be seen as sexually immoral, a fornicator. Okay, in our society, we're like, whatever. Okay, in that society, you know what they were like? Bring her out to the gates of the city with her father. 
let him and the elders of the town stone her to death. That's what it says in the Old Testament. That if the sheets were examined and the woman on her wedding night was not found to be a virgin, she was to be killed at the gates of the city. All of a sudden, this girl is supposed to be a virgin. Shows up with a kid. Now, she had better give an explanation or she's going to get killed. What would she have to say? Oh, no, no. You don't understand. The Holy Spirit did this to me. Okay, that never goes over well. The Holy Spirit got me pregnant. Now she's guilty of fornication and blasphemy. This is a woman who was in trouble in her culture, in her context, in society. Something she didn't have control of, nothing she did wrong, but you better be sure that she would suffer radical social rejection. And so I'm sure that when the census was taken and her and David had to go, her and uh, Joseph, excuse me, had to go to Bethlehem, the city of David, that she was stoked to get out of Nazareth. This was a woman that was living in shame. And then they get to Bethlehem and there's no room in the inn. The Bible doesn't tell us, so this is pure speculation, but I wonder if they weren't poor, I'm sure they looked poor. If they weren't poor and she wasn't pregnant out of wedlock, I wonder if there would have been room. The Bible doesn't say it, but I just know how we are as people. We take a look, oh no, I'm sorry. We're all booked up and shutting down now. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say it, it's just speculation, but I wonder. They hadn't been poor if there would have been room at some inn somewhere. Nobody wanted them. She went to go give birth to the savior of the world in an animal stable, most likely a cave. And the deliverer of humanity was laid in a manger. A manger, an active manger that animals ate out of every day, covered in slobber, snot, and everything else. The king of the universe was laid in a manger. And the angels went out to the fields and the first ones that were told about the coming of the king were the shepherds. Everybody hated shepherds. A shepherd's witness was not accepted in a court of law. Do you have any witnesses to call? Here we are in the first century Israel. We've got this civil court, the civil case. Do you have any witnesses to call? Yes, I want to call the shepherds. Ah, sorry. We don't accept the testimony of shepherds. They're the low lives of society. They were. And they were hated by the religious folk. You see, their job dealing with animals all day long made them unclean. And it kept them out in the fields ceremonially unclean. It kept them out in the fields. So they seldom got to come and go through the rituals that made them ceremonially pure. And so they were all but excluded from the religious life of Israel. They were the religious and the social outcasts working out in the fields all day long. And I need to tell you that the angels went to them and nobody else. what we begin to see is that the tapestry of the advent is woven with broken fibers. The story of the coming of Jesus Christ is filled with those who were losing, those who had lost, and those who were broken from the prophets to the shepherds. And the problem is that today in our affluent culture, we seldom recognize our brokenness. 
We don't see ourselves as shepherds. We don't see ourselves as barren. We don't see ourselves as too little to be in the in crowd. But Jesus said in Revelation 3, You say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, everything that Israel was in the first century circumstantially is who we are right now spiritually. Destitute, bankrupt sinners before God. And the reason why everyone wants to take the Christ out of Christmas is because nobody wants to admit that. Society wants to stick their head in the sands, but you see, Christmas is just this. It is the one who rejuvenates coming to the weary. It is the one who renews coming to the worn out. It is the one who repairs coming to the broken. The one who restores coming to the marginalized. And the one who revives coming to the dying. And because that's the way that Jesus came the first time, the Hebrews in chapter 10 are told to look for his second coming. Yeah, you guys are marginalized, broken, worn out, and weary. And some of you will be dying soon. But look for the, condem- the coming of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what we do with this. What this brings us to is a place of worship. When we realize that the advent, the incarnation, the coming of the deliverer was delivered into a context of brokenness for those who were lost and losing and ought to turn our hearts toward praise because we see ourselves, at least we should see ourselves in that story because that's who we are as alienated from God, separate from God, sinners, broken and diseased and infected with perversion. But when we realize that this is the very one to whom the Lord comes to save, then it ought to return us to a sincere place of worship. And what I think we see in scripture is that worship that comes from brokenness is beautiful. Worship that comes from brokenness is beautiful. Remember the first worship that Jesus ever received after he was birthed? It was from the Magi. Remember that? And what did they bring? It says that they opened up their box of treasures. I love that it says that. They had a box of treasures and in it, they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they presented these to the Lord as worship. Now, gold, frankincense, and myrrh represent Jesus Christ in his three roles as Messiah. His kingly office is represented by the gold that was offered him. His divinity by the frankincense and his manhood by the myrrh. And so when the Magi come and they open up their box of treasures, they offer to Jesus gold as their king, incense as their God, and myrrh as the one who came in a human body to be subject to suffering and death, even as they were. I want to narrow in for just a moment now on the frankincense. Frankincense was a costly and fragrant sap that came from a tree. But the only way that you got it from the tree was by piercing, by splitting, by wounding the bark of the tree. And when you wounded the tree, the sap would drip out and then people would collect that sap and it took three months for it to harden. 
And at the end of three months, they would take them, this sap now in the form of little dried up tears, and they'd be broken and crushed. And when it was burned, it was fragrant. It was a sweet smelling incense. And this is the very incense that was used in the Old Testament worship structure. This is the aroma that was spoken of in Exodus 30 where it said, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. And so throughout the worship structure that God ordained, there was this sweet-smelling incense, this fragrance that was pleasing to the Lord. But the only way that this fragrance that was pleasing to the Lord was ever gotten was through the wounding of that tree. Now, very obviously and wonderfully for you and I, that prefigures the person of Jesus Christ. And it broadens our view of the gifts of the wise men that day. It gives us a full understanding. When they gave frankincense to him, it was this picture that he would be pierced and wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. And that it would please the Lord to crush him if he would offer himself a guilt offering for you and me. You see that? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. But for you and I, there's a lesson and it's this. Our worship, especially in times of brokenness, is to be pleasing to God. And that incense was a fragrant aroma that God commanded generation after generation, and it only came from the wounding of the tree. And when we can worship God in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain and our feeling crushed, then it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. Where we usually go with that is grumbling and complaining and poor me. But what Christmas tells us is that we can go into worship with that. And that worship from that place of difficulty is the most pleasing to the Lord. Isaiah promised in Isaiah 57 that the Lord dwells in a high and holy place, but he is also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. Isaiah 61 tells us that he is near to the afflicted and the brokenhearted, the captive and the prisoners. David said in Psalm 51 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a crushed and contrite heart. And that is the circumstantial reality for so many people in our community this Christmas. And that is the metaphysical reality of you and I as sinners at Christmas as we were broken by sin. But he who was coming has come, dealt with our sins, and will come again to deal with the whole world. And so then, even in the midst of brokenness and rejection and losing, we should praise the Lord. It's easy to celebrate when your team is winning. And we love to do that. But what about when you feel like you're losing? Listen to me. Worship that has to overcome feelings of fear, self-pity, doubt is precious before God. And so brothers and sisters at Christmas time, we take our broken places and we turn them into worship. 
Do you ever notice when the first time the disciples worshiped Jesus was? It was after he calmed the storm when they almost drowned in the Sea of Galilee. It was the first time they ever worshiped him. When they had been through the difficulty. And Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. And when he came, he came into a tough culture, a tough century, among a broken, fearful, displaced, struggling, immoral, perverse people. And he is coming again. And so in difficult times, we draw near to God, we do the will of God, and we look for the coming of the Son of God. And we let the most broken thing be a place of worship because even the manger became a holy of holies that night. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you always come in the midst of our brokenness. And you know what that is for each one of us. And so we'd simply say together, Lord, come. Come and meet us in these places. Heal us, Lord. Do a work of redemption. Christmas has a way of really revealing where we're dissatisfied. And yet you, God, are most glorified when we're most satisfied with you. Teach us to be satisfied with you, Lord. Expand the capacity of our hearts to know you, to experience you. And then having been healed, make us agents of healing, Lord. Send us out. Send us out, Lord, to represent you and your incarnation. You're coming to the broken. And you at the cross, you're being broken for our well-being. And your resurrection, your victory. And your ascension, your glory. And your coming, your justice. Make us such men and women, Lord. Prayer team is up here this morning, to your right and to your left. Let's worship him.